Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean... I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kalia will edify It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kalia are gonna talk, so you'd better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast, the podcast where we, Jennifer, and Kalia, two book nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Today we will be discussing Coraline by Neil Gaiman, a book that was published in 2002 and the stop-motion animation movie that came out in 2009. But first, we are going to tell you all the ways that you can connect with us on the internet. As you know, we have a webpage where you can find sources, references, and updates about the show. You can also connect to us via our Facebook page or our Twitter, both searchable by typing Pages and Popcorn Podcast into your search bar. And of course, you can email us directly at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. We really want to encourage you to rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to us on, especially iTunes, because that will help other people find us. As always, we want to thank our patrons for their ongoing support. $1 a month or 5 if you're feeling especially generous helps us keep doing this, and we love doing this. Coraline. Here is our recap. Coraline Jones and her parents move into an old house that has been divided into flats. The other tenants include Miss Spink and Miss Forcible, two elderly women retired from the stage, and Mr. Bobo, initially referred to as the crazy old man upstairs who claims to be training a mouse circus. The flat besides Coraline's is unoccupied, and a small door that links them is revealed to be bricked up when opened. Both of Coraline's parents are busy worker types that don't seem to have much time for her. Her mother insists on boring school clothes, her father's too busy to play with her, the setup is clear from the get-go. Coraline is a very clever, imaginative child whose parents don't really understand her. Coraline goes to visit her new neighbors. Mr. Bobo relays to her a message from the mice, don't go through the door. Coraline also has tea with Miss Spink and Miss Forcible, and Miss Spink spies danger in Coraline's future after reading her tea leaves, and gives her a stone with a hole in it which Coraline keeps in her pocket. Despite these warnings, Coraline decides to unlock the door when she's home by herself. This time, she finds the brick wall behind the door is gone. In its place is a long hallway that leads to a flat identical to hers, except inhabited by the other mother and other father, who have black buttons for eyes. The other mother is notably taller and thinner than her real mother. Her black hair seems to move by itself, her skin is paper white, and her nails are long and red. Coraline finds the other world more interesting than her own. The other mother cooks food that she actually enjoys. Both of her other parents pay more attention to her. Her toy box is filled with animal toys that can move and fly. The other Miss Spink and Miss Forcible perform a never-ending act in their flat. And the other Mr. Bobo performs a mouse circus. She even finds that the feral black cat that wanders around the house in the real world, in this world, can talk. The cat identifies itself as the same cat that lives in the real world and possesses the ability to travel through the gaps between the two worlds. 
Although intentionally rude and unhelpful for the greater part of the conversation, the cat briefly praises her for bringing protection and then vanishes. The other mother offers Coraline the opportunity to stay in the other world forever, but in order to do so, Coraline must allow buttons to be sewed into her eyes. Coraline is horrified and returns through the door to her home. Upon return to her apartment, Coraline finds that her real parents are missing. They do not return the next day, and the black cat wakes her and takes her to a mirror in her hallway through which she can see her trapped parents. They signal to her by writing help us in the glass, from which Coraline deduces that the other mother has kidnapped them. Though frightened of returning, Caroline goes to the other world to confront the other mother and rescue her parents. She tells a story of how her father sacrificed himself for her when she was younger. He distracted bees that were swarming so that she could run and get away, but he lost his glasses and he had to go back. He tells her that he wasn't afraid when he was protecting her because he was concerned for her, but when he had to go back for his glasses, he was very afraid. Coraline decides to be brave. In the garden, she is prompted by the cat to challenge the other mother, as her kind of thing loves games and challenges. The other mother tries to convince Coraline to stay, but Coraline refuses and is locked within a small space behind a mirror as punishment. In the small, dark closet space, she meets three ghost children. Each had in the past let the other mother, whom they archaically referred to as the bedlam, sew buttons onto their eyes. They tell Coraline how the other mother eventually grew bored with them, leaving them to die and cast them aside. They are trapped there because she has kept their souls. If their souls can be rescued from the other mother, then the ghosts can pass on. The ghost children implore Coraline to escape and avoid their fate. After the other mother releases Coraline from the mirror, Coraline proposes a game. If she can find the ghost children's souls and her parents' souls, then she and her parents and the ghost children may go free. If she loses, then Coraline will let the other mother sew the buttons into her eyes and become a loving daughter to her. The other mother agrees, and she swears on her right hand. Coraline searches through the other world and overcomes the other mother's obstacles by using her wits and Miss Spink's lucky stone to find the marble-like souls of the ghost children. She must also confront a washed-up, bloated, and cast-aside version of the other father. She manages to escape him by pulling out his button eyes so that he, transformed into a large, doughy, worm, slug-like creature who's trying to eat her, cannot find her, and she escapes. She also deduces that her parents are imprisoned in a snow globe on the mantelpiece. The ghost children warn her that even if Coraline wins, the other mother will not let them go, so Coraline tricks the other mother by announcing that she knows where her parents are hidden in the passageway between the worlds. The other mother cannot resist gloating by opening the door to show Coraline that her parents are not there, and when the other mother opens the door, Coraline throws the cat at her, grabs the snow globe, and escapes to the real world with the key and the cat, who quickly follows. While escaping, Coraline forces the door shut on the other mother's hand. Back in her home, Coraline falls asleep in a chair. She is awoken by her parents, who have no memory of the events. That night, Coraline has a dream in which she meets the three children at a picnic. The children are dressed in clothes from different periods, and one seems to have wings. They warn her that her task is still not done. The other mother will attempt to get her back and will try to get that key to open the door between the worlds. Coraline goes to an old well in the woods in order to dispose of the key. She pretends to have a picnic with the picnic blanket laid over the entrance to the well. The other mother's severed hand attempts to seize the key, but steps on the blanket and falls into the well. Coraline returns to the house, greeting her neighbors who finally get her name right and getting ready for school tomorrow. Okay, and here is the movie. Coraline Jones moves from Michigan to Oregon, the Pink Palace Apartments. As her parents struggle to complete their gardening catalog, Coraline is left to her own devices and meets with her new neighbors, including Mr. Bolinsky, a circus mouse trainer, Mrs. Spink and Forcible, two once famous actresses, Wyborn, YB, Levat, the talkative grandson of the Pink Palace's landlady, and a mysterious black cat. She finds a boarded-up well in the woods. YB gives Coraline a button-eyed rag doll he discovers that eerily resembles her. The doll lures Coraline into a small door to the apartment which is bricked up and can only be unlocked by a button-shaped key. That night, a mouse guides Coraline through the door, now a portal to the other world, which is more colorful and cheerful than her real home. Coraline meets the other mother and other father, button-eyed doppelgangers of her parents that appear more attentive and caring. After a super yummy dinner, Coraline goes to sleep in her other bedroom, only to awaken in her real bedroom in the morning. Coraline's neighbors cryptically warn her about the dangers of the other world, while YB tells her how his grandmother's twin sister disappeared as a child. Undeterred, Coraline visits the other world twice more, meeting the button-eyed other Mr. Belinsky and other Mrs. Splink, and Forcible, and the other YB, who is mute. The black cat follows her and is able to speak in the other world. The other mother invites Coraline to stay in the other world forever, provided she has buttons sewed onto her eyes. 
Coraline attempts to flee, but the other mother has blocked the portal and transforms into a menacing version of herself and imprisons Coraline behind a mirror. There, Coraline meets the ghosts of the other mother's child victims, including the sister of Wybie's grandmother. The spirits reveal that the other mother, whom they call Bedlam, used ragdolls like Coraline to spy on them, exploiting their unhappiness and luring them into the other world with the promise of better lives. The Bedlam sewed buttons over their eyes and consumed them, leaving their souls trapped. To free their souls, Coraline promises to find the children's real eyes. Coraline is rescued by the other YB and escapes back to the real world. She discovers her parents are missing and realizes that they have been kidnapped by the Bedlam. Miss Fink and Miss Forcible give Coraline an adder stone and she returns to the other world. The Bedlam locks the portal and swallows the key, but Coraline, following the Black Cat's advice, proposes a game. If Coraline cannot find cannot find her parents and the ghost's eyes, she will let buttons be sewed over her own eyes, but if she succeeds, the children's souls will be freed. The Bedlam reluctantly agrees. Using the Adder Stone, Coraline finds the children's eyes and discovers that the other YB was destroyed by the Bedlam for helping Coraline escape. It's very gruesome. We'll talk about it. As Coraline finds the eyes, the other world gradually disintegrates until only her family's living room is left. Coraline sees the Bedlam in her true skeletal arachnid form and tricks her into unlocking the portal. While the Bedlam is distracted, Coraline finds her parents trapped in a snow globe, throws the cat at the Bedlam's face, ripping her button eyes out. Blinded, the Bedlam furiously feeds bills for Coraline, but she and the cat manage to escape and lock the door shut in the Bedlam's hand, severing it. Coraline's parents reappear in the real world with no memory of what has happened. That night, the ghost warned Coraline the Bedlam will never stop looking for the key to the portal. As Coraline prepares to drop the key down an old well, the severed hand tries to drag her back to the other world. YB smashes it with a rock, and they throw the remains of the hand, the key, and the rock into the well and seal it, seal it shut. The next day, Coraline and her parents, who have finally finished their catalog, host a garden party for their neighbors, and Coraline prepares to tell Mrs. Lovett about her twin sister. Okay, before we discuss it, how did you come to it? I saw the movie first. I thought it was hella interesting. It's got great visuals. And then I read the short story about a couple years ago and then reread it for this. Okay. I saw the movie in the theater and I'm pretty sure that it was like a 3D movie. And I don't I don't see in 3D regularly. So 3D glasses, 3D movies, they just do not work for me in my eyes. And we went with a bunch of people, so we sat far back, and we had these glasses, so it was very blurry. Like, I basically listened to this movie with some interesting color blobbies on a screen. <laughs> Everyone was like, oh my god, it was so interesting. Oh my god, it was so visually entertaining. And I was like, I'm pretty sure she won? Like, <laughs> at all. Sure, okay. So then I was like, okay, fine, what else? But then everybody, like, talked about it, and the years have gone by, and every now and then it gets mentioned, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyways, you put it on our list. I was like, oh, okay, okay, I have a nice big television, and I don't have to see it in 3D. So I read the book, freaking loved the book, and then watched the movie and was like, yeah, okay, that's cool. I see, I see. So we'll, we'll save, I guess, most of that for the end, but I think I've spoiled it a little bit. The movie was whatever. Yeah, so they shot from two different cameras to get the 3D effect. It was stop motion and... As a 3D, it was okay. Um, I'm glad they did stop motion rather than, you know, 2009-era CGI, just because it doesn't always age very well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, for me, the stop motion worked really, really well. And yeah. the button eyes were so intensely creepy. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of the stuff in the movie was intensely, intensely creepy. And, and that was good. Um, it's definitely one of those visually movies that even even not seeing it in 3D, even seeing it on my large screen, just because of the way my personal eyes process animation, I I know that it's not nearly as impactful. Like I, mm. I mean, not to get on a tangent here, but I know people love Nightmare Before Christmas, and I can't stand that movie. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me visually. It's just very confusing. And so this movie was not that extent. Um, it wasn't to that extent, but it definitely, there were moments where I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm missing something. Hmm. But because it was a person and a cat and people, like, it was a lot easier to figure out what was going on and stuff. So, okay. But the story was really good. And yeah. Even without the visuals. Um, I will tell you that there are pictures in the book that I have. Do you have pictures in the book that you have? I listened to Neil Gaiman read it. Okay. Um, the first time I had... An e-copy and the e-book copy didn't have the pictures. I've seen the pictures online and they're really good. Yeah, the the pictures in the book are, are hecka creepy and I like them a lot. So they do look like the conceptual art for the film. 
the film is pretty um, faithful mm-hmm. to the illustrations. Yeah. There's a few things that are, are different, but yeah. Well, while we're talking about the changes, let's just talk more. Like, the biggest change... Wyborn? Wyborn! Wybe! And I read a couple interesting theories about maybe why Wybe was added in. Do you have a, a, a personal theory or any thoughts on it? I... Because I certainly do. Okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm interested to hear those. So, Wyborn is essentially a superfluous character because everything that he does, Coraline did in the book... However, I like his addition in the movie because we're not as in Coraline's head. So we do need someone for her to kind of bounce off of. So in that sense, it helps with a different medium. I've heard some theories about him and as that kind of goes into other mother and worlds and dimensions. But let's go for it. What, what have you theorized? Well, okay. And, and I read this and so I can't take full credit, but it really resonated with me. The idea that this is a... 2009 strong female character movie where she's going to basically be the heroine. Well, what about all the poor boys? Well, <laughs> who are they going to root for? So we have to have a boy who is freaking important and rescues her and, you know, twice. And, I, okay, so gag, because she didn't need him in the book. Coraline rescues herself. And I felt like that really detract a lot. And mm-hmm. I can see what you're saying about there's another character she can bounce ideas. I have seen movies where we are enough in the character's head or they narrate or they talk or they are something. Um, we don't need a whole extra character to understand our first character, I don't think, if you're going to write it well. And I, yeah, so I found him completely superfluous. Also, and maybe this is just an animation thing, like the kid's neck, like he was... Well, no, um, I always took Wyborn as having something physical going on, sort of like some sort of physical impairment. Okay, well, yeah. if they, again, possibly because animation is hard for me to visually understand, it really just looked like they were making him floppy and, and weird for the sake of being okay, floppy yeah. and weird. So if I apologize to anybody out there who has spinal issues and holds your head the way YB appears to be holding his head in this movie, that's definitely not my intent, but I I was very confused about so I don't what pry, was happening yeah, there? I don't pry into people's medical issues, but I've seen that kind of thing where people hold their head to the side like that, um, and it's some sort of physical issue. So that's why it appeared very much like okay, that. Okay, so, so, okay, I like that we have, rep- if, if that is the case, then it's good to have representation of people with differing abilities... And it's fine to not make that like a major plot point or or something, but I feel like because the whole movie was weird and overly exaggerated, um, and of course now I'm just now thinking of this as we're talking about it because we just now brought that up. We don't look at our notes ahead of time. But like, for example, Mr. Belinsky, he's 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 like a caricature of a person. Like he's incredible incredibly thin and incredibly strangely shaped and he's flipping around and he's blue i mean like okay so that's not real so if you take somebody who's like an actual person and then you you translate that into the animation world but then you change them in these in these ways there has to be a reason well I, I have a I have a note about Mr. Bobinski. Okay. So this would be really hard for you to pick up. He has this medal that he is always wearing. And it was a medal given to people who cleaned up after Chernobyl in 1986. And it says, if you look really, really closely, but you have to have high def and look really closely, it says participant in the cleanup campaign. So there's a drop of blood that is bisected into three sections, and that represents how much radiation exposure that you got. So there's... So he's blue because he got exposed to radiation? Because he was doing a heroic thing? Yep. Because wow, he's that's kind of... so fucking subtle, though. It is. There's a lot of, like, visual subtleties. There's oh, a lot of them. Yeah, I'm just... Okay. So why be being differently able, Mr. Bublinski being blue, like, these are things that to me added nothing and almost distracted from the actual story. And I felt like they were there, like, maybe they were visual clues for something that I just missed, but it kind of almost felt like padding 
Like, it wasn't enough. The story wasn't enough. So let's add all these extra elements to it. I don't know that so much that. I think, to me, it shows a huge attention to detail. So one of the first things is, if you look at the dollar bill, um, the face on the dollar bill isn't George Washington. It's actually the director's head, um, Henry Selleck. So they give him, you know, the movers a dollar tip. That's his face on the dollar bill. So there's a lot of... There's a ton of really, really tiny detail. And to me, that looks like something that people put a lot of effort into crafting. But why? Why not? No, no. (laughs) Why not is not a good enough answer for why. If you are an author or an artist and you make a decision to do something, everything you do is a decision. The gender of your character, whether they're differently abled or not, if they're going to win or lose, where they live, how they live, the words that they use, the thoughts in their head, those are decisions that the author and artist has made. And there needs to be a reason for them. You don't just throw a dart at a board and decide to do stuff like that to me feels like Easter egg shenanigans. And that is just attention horse shit. Like stop doing that make, tell a good story. You don't need all these extra blingy things. I'm waving my hands around in frustration. (laughs) If your story is good enough, then you don't need all of that extra crap is good enough. So why do you need all that extra? Sorry. Yes. But it isn't all extra crap. There's a lot of foreshadowing involved, too. And there's lots of hints of little things that are going on if you want to get into some deep theory about sure. like, how the, the dimensions work. So, let's see. There's Mr. Bobinski. Wait, hold on. Okay. I'm all here for foreshadowing and hints about the other world. The director's face being on the dollar bill. That's just cute. No, it's not! <laughs> <laughs> That's just there so that smarty pants people can be like, did you notice that the director's face was on the... I can't help it if I'm smarty pants. (laughs) I'm just saying that 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 literally, that's like freaking fan service to people who are going to go frame by frame. for fan service? I like... Okay, there's nothing wrong with fan service. I feel like sometimes that is what you do when you don't have something strong enough. This was strong enough and amazing. This book is freaking amazing. It doesn't need all of these it garish little... It is an amazing assi- story. I, don't, I wouldn't say it's garish because would you really notice it unless you're watching the film 50 times and you go, oh, hey, wait. But the dollar bill, maybe not, but the other stuff, like having Mr. Belinsky be blue and have the medal and da-da-da, I mean, and then have... Why are we adding all of these things to it? Does it need that? I think it adds an interesting dimension to his character. So I thought that was cool. So when, okay, so take. Only if the audience actually knows it. Like you said, like it's a very small, subtle metal and you'd have to like know what it was or go look it up or I mean. <sighs> so yeah, you do have to look at it. So it is, it's, it's a visual feast, but to me, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a detail that if you don't see it, it's still a good story. If you do see it, you go, Oh, wait, there's more stuff that's going on. And I like it when you have character development that can be told in a few lines, or you have just a little visual, and you get something really, really fascinating out of it. Hmm. Okay, we'll come back to this, because there's other stuff. There's so much, there is so much going on in this film. I mean, or it's a really cool story, and you don't need all that other extra Okay, so stuff. when you listen to the dad's song, you know, mm-hmm. he's got that little song about Coraline. She's a pal, she's a friend of mine. How closely were you listening to the lyrics? Well, I watched the movie once and was taking notes. Mm-hmm. So the lyrics are very foreshadowy of what's going on. Oh, right. On. Yeah. Okay, I got that. So it's this peppy little song, and sometimes you're just kind of going along with the tune. And then if you actually look at the lyrics, it's like, oh, wait, that's kind of creepy. And he's sort of trying to warn her. Mm-hmm. Do you get that at first blush? Or are you just kind of enjoying the music and going along? I didn't think that the song was overly subtle. And we were already in that world. We already knew that there were bad things. I would not put that in the same category of this blue character whose body is not realistically shaped also happens to have a medal that will tell you something about their character if you happen to A, notice it, and B, know what it is, or C, have the inclination to go look it up. I would put those in very different categories of storytelling. I would say they're all in the same category of foreshadowing or character development. It's just how much are you willing to look into it? Because there's some really tricky little things that are going on that I sat back and went, okay, this is mirroring that. I don't know exactly what it means, but it's, it's a clue for something. So to me, that shows 
a level of care that went into the production. I, I feel like when you get into this idea of what things have extra meaning as opposed to the surface meaning and what things don't, and you start mm. like looking at it and looking again and again, and I just, I mean, come on, that's fine if that's what you want to do. But I think that stories and movies and books should be accessible to people who aren't going to be the super fans. And, and having a lot of this Easter egg shenanigans is, yeah. I mean, whatever, it's fine. We all have come to things differently. Personally, I didn't get much out of it because I didn't enjoy that aspect of it. And um, I could have done without it. There's something. So I'm going to compare two things. One that we have talked about before and one that is its own thing. So The Simpsons is funnier the more you know about the world. Uh, when I watched The Last Unicorn, there's a lot of stuff I don't get because I was a child. And then as an adult, I go, oh, there's this whole other level that I just didn't understand because I was a kid. I appreciate stuff like that where you can watch the film and it's a cute little story. And then you, if you want to, dive deeper and really theorize about it and have some fun playing with it. And it's still a really cool story. Sure. So I like having the layers. I just feel like those layers were there in The Last Unicorn, the book. And then they were there in the movie. And in here, they all got added on in the movie. And that frustrates me. Because that's too much of a departure from the original source material. For the sake of just being cute or interesting or Easter egg-esque. Okay, so let me ask you this then. What do you think about the corridor being its own monster? Because it's presented that way in the book. Yeah, I thought it was cool. Well, I wasn't exactly sure if there was it was a monster or there was a monster in the corridor. Yeah. It was a little... It was a little nebulous, but I, that was fine. I was cool with that. Why? Well, um, I picked out a couple lines because I found the corridor to be super fascinating in the book. In the movie, there's a lot of... It kind of looks like the well. It sort of doesn't... It's not really a corridor. It's more of a tunnel. But in the book, it's... And it changes. Yeah. It's all colorful and magical looking at the beginning. And then when she's going back through, it's like falling apart and... And decaying and right. brown. And... and in the book, it does change. It gets mm -hmm. longer and shorter. But it feels like the corridor is almost its own monster. And it says that it's older than the other mother. Right. So there's, there's this whole dimensional world going on. And that there's a predator out there going after Coraline that is worse than the other mother. Okay. I thought that was really fascinating, and that doesn't quite come out in the film, because it's almost impossible to do. Right. It's all just atmosphere. But that's what I mean. There, there's different levels of stuff, and it depends on how far you want to go down rabbit hole theories. Well, I how don't do these think you have work? to go down rabbit hole theories to be like, this is a creepy thing that happened in the book. Yes. <laughs> but it's, you know, do you, want, do you want to try to explain, like, well, how does the influence of the mo other mother go into the real world? So, in the film, the Pink Palace is like this one bright spot of pink among a whole bunch of gray. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of fascinating. So is she infiltrating the whole house in some way? How does she lure the kids out? You know, what extent do her powers have? Because she has these limits. And then the cat is able to go through its own sort of rabbit holes, being a cat. Mm -hmm. So I'm okay with not having all my questions answered, for sure. Like, that's part of the joy here. And I think Neil Gaiman does a really good job as a writer when that happens. When he says things like, you know, the mother, she says, didn't you have a mother? And she goes, yes, and I put her in her grave. And then when she climbed out, I put her in again. You're like, that could be a whole story right there. But it's not. It's a line. It's fine. It adds a little bit. And then we move on. I don't need every single thing answered. And I don't need every single thing blown up to have 27 different meanings attached to it. I'm not saying that, um, because that is something I, I kind of like that Gaiman does. He he writes a very fine line of how much do you really want to go into explaining and how much do you just want to say it's a fun story, fairy tales have fairy tale logic to it. It's yeah. dream logic. It doesn't have to quite make sense. And that was fine with me. I enjoyed that immensely. But I don't know. It's also fun to kind of pull things apart, too, and go, well, how does this work? How does that work? I guess in theory, you know, I, you can theorize and thought experiment and that's all well and good. I still don't see that as the same thing as adding a bunch of visual hoogly walks to a movie that was 
that had a really amazing story to begin with. But I, mean, I, I feel like we're just probably going to have to yeah. agree to disagree on that. But I still think that the story is amazing. Okay. You know, if you love the book, don't be afraid of watching the film. The film does justice to the book. I would agree with that. Yes. So this is definitely not me shitting all over the film. <laughs> I just, there was a few parts of it that I was like, I don't, and, and I will, I will happily take a big ass crap on YB because I really don't get the point of that. Why was he there? What did he do? Except give a boy perspective and freaking save Caroline. And again, I'm going to say she doesn't need you to save her. She was fully capable of saving herself. They added him and they took out one of my favorite parts. Where she book. saves herself? Well, yes. No, they changed that. But they took out her whole relationship with her father. Mm. And the story, and, and even like when I read recaps online, they didn't even have that part in there of the book recap. And with I the felt, wasps. With the wasps. It's so important. Did you mention that in your I recap? sure as heck did. Okay. Because her father tells, you know, he, they had this shared experience. Her father loved her. He was, you know, both of her parents are definitely set up to be these busy parents. So this is all told to the cat as they're going through the court. Right, right, right. So, but but before she even talks about this, like, the story sets up her parents as to be, they're very busy, da 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 da, da. But in the movie, they're like, her mom especially is a total bitch. In the book, her mom's not mean. She's just distracted. She's busy. They've just moved there. There's lots of stuff going on, you know? Um, in her, in the book, when her dad's like, here's a piece of paper, count the windows, count the doors, find everything blue. It's like a fun thing. Like it, it felt like something that you've done before or like what you do in the car with your kid when you're all like together. In the movie, it was like, get out of my office. It was very, it was very, very different. So like the characterizations of the parents I found unsettling. I felt like the movie leaned way more into making them unaccessible and not good. And the book, in the book, we had the idea of the dad cooking and like making a recipe. And he was trying to cook these fancy feel, you know, meals. And, and that's, that's a way that some people show love is by cooking. I mean, so there was a lot more to it. So then, like you said, we get into the part where she's talking to the cat and she is trying to psych herself up to be brave. And so a lot of times when we do this as humans, we look for or we reach for an example or a hero or somebody that we can try to emulate to, to, you know, fake it till it's real kind of an idea. And the thing that Coraline pulls from is her father and how he sacrificed himself for her and how he said to her, I wasn't afraid when I was concerned about you because my concern about you eclipsed that fear. I was more afraid when I had to go back by myself into something I knew was bad. And so Coraline is taking from that the lesson that A, you don't abandon your family. B, sometimes you sacrifice yourself for somebody you love. C, that it is scarier to go into something scary when you know what it is. D, it is scary to go alone. Thank God for this cat. E, like, you know, the adrenaline it has to be. I mean, like all of these things she gets from the story that she shares with the cat about her dad. And they took that out of the movie and I will never forgive them for that. <laughs> There are like a couple little wasps in the film that is kind of like an Easter egg to the book of, oh yeah, there's a story. But yes, I do miss that story. It was a really, really good story. Yes. But I, I'm kind of surprised you say that. In the film, the father has a bigger role. He doesn't have as important a role. Right. Yeah. And again, so there he is and he sings the song and the thing plays him and he's trying to help her early on. And then he, in the book... He's in this basement and he has become grub-like and he's like basically like bloated and disgusting and lost most of his sense of shape of the other father and he's missing an eye and then she steals his eye and like all and that that is Coraline facing a horrible thing that's Coraline being really smart of of figuring out what the eyes she does later with the with the bedlam with the cat and the eyes in the movie but in the book it's this is when she does it pulls the eyes escape she has to be quiet like that is an incredibly scary scene it's basically he's devolved pointly just this grub-like thing with a big ass mouth it's terrifying in the movie he's chasing her in his weird ass praying mantis, praying sort of mantis tractor. lawn mower tractor thing in the garden and as he's doing he's like i don't want to hurt you but i will and then they're all falling and then and then she gets 
I, she gets out of that. Like, it's just, it's, I mean, okay, it's, it's a flashy and more action adventure sort of scene, you know, but it, it's not nearly as tense. It's not nearly as scary. And it, it, ugh. okay, fine. Well, I wonder if that's just the medium. You know, in film, we expect a little bit more action, whereas in books, we're willing to be more cerebral. Yeah, I mean, I just, I feel like we we have seen films, we've even talked about films, that do horror in a cerebral way. And we don't, it doesn't have to be flashy, praying, mantis, running, ugh, whatever. Well, this is one of the reasons I like looking at sort of the theory. The mother can only create copies of what she sees in the real world. And that's how Caroline... Coraline, and I don't make that mistake either. Uh, just today. <laughs> just today. But yes, the mother can't create. She can only... And this is how Coraline figures out that her parents are in the snow globe. Because mm-hmm. the snow globe isn't around. It's the one thing that she... Is added and different. Yeah. yeah. So it's something that she stole because she can't create anything. And that's what makes me wonder about these creations of like the other father and the other Wybie. Because they do try to defy the other mother. You know, Whitey is a really sympathetic character in a lot of ways when he's his mouth is sewn into that smile and it's painful to look at. And the sacrifice that he does that she can get out, even though he's going to be stuck in that dimension, that's right. a whole level of just pathos where I went, oh, God, that poor character. Right. Well, and then the other mother, to punish him for helping her, basically... I takes all of his there's a scientific term that I don't know probably for the best takes all of his insides out and hangs just his flappy Eviscerate. little bit of skin out just to be flapping in the breeze as like a you know it's, it's like the whole heads on stakes mentality it's like here's a warning this is the bad thing that I have now punished this person who helped you it's hecka creepy yeah she it's, eviscerates him she's super disgusting um I mean, I just didn't think that character needed to be there anyways, but sure, let's add some other, let's add the horror level to it. Like, she made a copy of YB, but she can't talk. YB can't talk in the other world, whereas in our world, he talks a lot. Um, But I find that fascinating of, because it goes to the question, she is a spider. She is this kind of trappy, evil creature. How much of this is her manipulating Coraline through these characters who have some sort of resistance? Is that real or is that not? But that's that's for those of us who want to jump down the rabbit hole. <laughs> okay, so one of the other things I noticed I thought was really fascinating is if you look at the candy dishes, they all have years on them. So there's 1921. And we're talking about the movie now. Yes, and these are the Burlesque Sisters, mm-hmm. which... God, I love them so much in the movie. That scene, it's like, oh, it's not quite appropriate for children, but it's still really cool. Um, So 1921, this is kind of when burlesque was at its peak. Uh, Then there's the 1936, and that's the carnival with Mr. Bobinski. There's 1960, that's uh, Miss Loveless' family, and she loses her twin, who goes into this other world. Um... If you're following these numbers, there is a missing number between that and Coraline. So, again, some theory that maybe there was uh, YB's father because or YB's parents, because we don't see what's really going on. There's like a missing generation there. But I found that really fascinating with these candy dishes. And you do have these little hints of resistance from these characters who are kind of under this spider creature, the bedlam's control in some sort of way. And that they're all in entertainment is really fascinating. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there is a graphic novel based on the book. And in the graphic novel, they make this a little bit more clear that the other mother... Because the Coraline's never in physical danger, except for like losing her eyes, which is really creepy. But physically, she's not in a whole lot of danger. It's more of a spiritual thing. So what is the other mother really feeding on? She says, well, I just want to love you and care for you. And that's going to turn into a ghost. So what is the other mother feeding on? Why does she have these sort of creative types in her world? And why does that one girl have wings? So one of the theories is that she feeds on magic. She feeds on this sort of innocence and this creativity. Uh, one of the characters is called Huck Finn Jr. One of the little ghosty kids. And Kaylee is rolling her eyes so hard. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. you know what? The, the thing is... Everything you just said is reminding me of why I don't like prequels. 
You write a great story. People are like, that's so great. And then some people are like, I really want to live more in this world. I really want to live more in this world. And so then you're like, oh, okay. And then you write a prequel where you explain things and give extra elements to your world and you flesh it out and blah, blah, blah. And sometimes that's fine. And sometimes it's really, really unnecessary. And yep, that's where I'm at. I really liked the book. I'm really good with the book was the book. It was great. You have a different opinion. <laughs> that is also great. <laughs> I'm also going to say Neil Gaiman has written fan fiction. He wrote a really interesting What About Susan from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Because she's the one child that doesn't get to go back at all. Because she grew yeah, up I, and started liking boys. And Neil Gaiman has a very dark, cynical view of the world that would kick her out when she's going back to, you know, post-World War II and Reconstruction. I'm just saying, it's not bad to consider implications. I don't think I said that it was bad to consider implications. I think what I said is that prequels are often unnecessary. Well, we're not prequeling. This is no. the stuff that's in the film. Yeah, and the graphic novel, and da, da, da. It's added levels and added layers, and that's fine, in my opinion, unnecessary is all I'm saying. So. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so take it what you will. It's fine to have different opinions. It's fine to love things on different levels. That's right. And if we agreed, we would not be doing this because that would be boring. There you go. Can we also talk about, well, we talked a little bit about um, the other mother looking different, right? In the book. She her she's tall. Her fingers are longer, and her hair is alive. It's Medusa esque. Yes. In the film, it, she's super different. When she changes, she changes a lot, and then she becomes this arachnid skeletal needle finger thing. And Coraline has a totally different relationship with the other mother in the book. In the book, she's just kind of like, this isn't right. In the book, because in the book, Coraline is way more awesome than she is in the film. In the book, Coraline knows that something's up and jiggy with it real fast. She walks in and she's like, mm, nope. Really freaking fast. She understands what's going on. And, and even if she doesn't get it completely, her little spidey sense is tingling. Spidey sense. Yes. Uh-huh. Well done, me. Um, <laughs> so I, and I loved that. I love that she's like, okay, I'm in this fairy tale world. Okay, like this is, I'm, I'm going with it, but I'm not going to lose my sense of, of who I am and the reality. And I'm going to cling to these actual bona fide memories. <laughs> like time my dad. Okay, sorry. I'm not going to get onto it again, but it's a good story though. It is a really good story. So. Yes, in the in the book, that was definitely the case. In the movie, she was a little bit more like, oh, cool, ta-da, like, I want to be here, this is where I am, and I'm going to buy it, hook, line, and sinker. And Yeah, you're getting into a different theme there of, you know, book Coraline just kind of recognizing that her family has always loved her, is always very special to her, and the temptation isn't the same, where mm-hmm. the movie is much more about, what, do you really want what you wish? Mm-hmm. Well, she says that in the book, too. You know, we don't always, you know, if you got what you wanted all the time, then you wouldn't want it anymore. And, like, that that lesson is definitely there, but it's definitely made better and bigger and whatever in the movie because because the juxtaposition is so much yeah. bigger. Yeah, because her parents are do really love Horrible her. in the movie and, and much more loving in the book. Yes. Well, okay, so they do love her in the movie. They're just going through that period of, well, we have to work. We have deadlines. We're just moved. And then as soon as all that's done, it's time to have fun and reconnect. It's because we've all been there when you just have a deadline and you love your kid, but mommy's got to work right now. Well, I, I definitely, I work from home. This yeah. this office is the thing. My daughter walks in and I'm like, oh, hold on one sec. Let me finish this off. Because if you walk in and you're like, mommy, I had a dinosaur and then the dinosaur was over here. And now I don't know what happened to the sparkles of the crown of the thing that you remember when we were at Wednesday at the park. Holy shit. I have lost all train of thought. I was literally typing about Yom Kippur, but now I'm not. Like, okay. So I get it. You know, I understand boundaries and I understand frustration. And this book, the book made me feel guilty a little bit. Like, oh, man, I should make sure I spend more time with my kid and I don't want her to ever feel like this. But 
um, the movie just, it, it took away. I was like, Oh God, these people are just written to be bad. Like, and I get it. We're getting it from Coraline's perspective. I just liked Coraline in the book so much better. Let me ask you a question. Coraline in the book versus Coraline in the movie. A couple major differences. One with the blue hair. Okay, sure. Fine. The other, the age. Did you think that they are the same age? Because when I read the book, and ha- remember, I didn't really see the movie before I read the book. I just heard it. Coraline seemed younger to me. And then I saw the movie and I was like, oh, so she's supposed to be a little bit older. But she acts a little bit younger. Yeah. She, well, she acts less mature. Yeah. The book Coraline seemed younger and smaller, but more mature. I found... Okay. So on a side note, because yes, that is an important question. It's really hard to write children. Uh, if you try to write them accurately, they're kind of annoying when they come out on books. If you try to write them like little adults, it's not as authentic. So it's a fine balance. There are very few child characters that I really like. Um, and they usually have to have some sort of personality that makes them really unique. That's where Book Coraline did really well. Where she's a very mature young girl. She reads like a child who is a little bit more mature than maybe an average child, but still interesting. You can still feel into that character. Because she's an only child. And little girls who are only children with parents who work from home on their computers are just destined to be way more clever and amazing than all other children in the world. Okay. Yeah, so we'll make sure that your daughter listens to this when she's 16. (laughs) (laughs) One and done. (laughs) Because you're special. And done. (laughs) Because you're perfect. <laughs> yeah, we didn't need to try again. That's right. Whereas my parents did. I can tell that to my brother. That's right. All right. Okay. <laughs> also, I'm the oldest. Just going to throw that out there. <laughs> Could have stopped when you were ahead. No, just kidding. I love my sisters. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, yes. So she's a, a much more mature child mm. in the book than in the movie. And I feel like that made me sympathize with her more and root for her more. Plus, again, we didn't have the freaking wivy character. Like, it's all better. Coraline in the book was really smart. Yeah. And she figured stuff out. And film Coraline is more adventurous, I would say. And she's an explorer in both senses. She likes to figure things out and and kind of explore the world. Yeah, one of the very first things we're told about Coraline in the book is that there was this old well, and she was warned against it, so one day she decided to go and find it. Like, yep. literally. Like, that's... Yeah, she's that's an awesome our character. introduction to Coraline. She's amazing. Yeah, so film Coraline, you're just supposed to sympathize with her a little bit more. Yeah, but we're but we're giving all these clues to that, that she's quirky and clever and awesome because she has blue hair, and... She stuff. comes off a little bit bratty in the movie where she does it in the book. A little? Okay. She comes off as bratty in the book. Or in no, the, in the movie where she does it in the book. Yes, for sure. I mean, even just like when, um, you know, she goes and talks to her dad and he's like, what'd the boss say? And she's like, Garland, don't even think about it, blah, blah, blah. In the book, she wasn't yelling that in this in- exasperated. She was just, you know, she said, don't even think about it. He's like, well, there you go. There's your answer. In the movie, she's like, don't even think about it. I mean, she's like, Ma-. I was like, oh my god. But then I will say, because I've been pretty also kind of more awful too. So. I've been pretty down on the movie. The little thing with her swinging on the door of her dad's office because it creaks, mm. swing, 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 and he's like, oh my god. <laughs> okay, that was a true moment. I resemble that moment. <laughs> so I will say, like, I'm not completely down on this movie there were some definitely parts of it that i i liked and the additions they made but a lot of it i just i uh, so this is a tricky thing when you're writing children's literature you have to put some stuff in there for the adults to enjoy yeah and on this one you do sympathize with Coraline. if you're writing it from a child's perspective that's i remember feeling that way and i was nowhere near neglected my mom was like the best most fantastic mom. Mom, I love you. Since we're doing family yes. service today. Uh, so I was never neglected, but there are times when my parents were busy. Uh, at one point, I do have a picture of this. They said, Jen, just go go catch a duck. Because they're working and they just need me out of the way. It's a little bit like count all the pictures. So yes, I caught a duck. And we have a picture of me as a three-year-old holding a duck. That's awesome. 
Yeah, it's an I awesome I lived picture. in the city. If my dad ever said, go catch a duck, I don't even know what would have happened. <laughs> yeah, so I came up like three minutes later like, oh shit, she actually did catch a duck. Uh, dinner! <laughs> we let him go. Oh. He's a cute little duck. Okay. So anyway, long story. <laughs> From a kid's perspective, even if your parents are the most awesome parents ever, there are times where you're just like, I'm bored! <laughs> So I get that with Caroline. God damn it. I get that with Coraline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the child's perspective, it worked for me, even if she does come off as kind of bratty, because if she was too perfect, she'd be the Mary Sue. I don't want her to be too perfect. I want her to learn her lesson and to really appreciate her parents. Okay, so so there we go. So in, in the movie, Coraline has to be taught a lesson. Mm. Appreciate your parents. They might be complete jack wagons, but you know what? They're your parents, they're so not. whatever. They're in the busy. movie, they are though. They're 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 because it's one thing to be like, "I'm really busy. Come back in twenty minutes, and I'll give time to you." Or I need to do this, but that you know, like like it. We didn't get the all the extra shit in the movie. They were jack wagon parents, but of course, that's what she has to learn is that she loves them, and she's you know this is better off than an alternative dimension where there's people who will steal your eyes and capture your soul and be horrible to you. So yes, your jack wagon parents are a better alternative to that. Was there a lesson in the book for Coraline? Did she have to be taught a lesson? Because I didn't get that. I got Coraline had an adventure and faced her fears and learned to, to be brave and was brave and saved her world. So it's a different lesson in each one. It's a different sort of tale that you're telling. Yes. I think I like the lesson, if we're going to call it a lesson. I like the journey, the hero's journey, and all of that in the book way better than the movie. The movie, I've I've kind of seen that before. You know, it's the Home Alone thing of, you know, your parents are busy, but they really love you sort of lesson. Mm -hmm. And you need to kind of appreciate what's going on. So I've seen that one before. But I think for a film, you do have to... Sort of raise the stakes. Sure. Because you don't have the, the the whole thing that's going on with the book that you can dive into. I'm just saying, like, they had different lessons, different yeah. whatever. And personally, I liked the book, quote unquote, lesson better than the book lesson of, yeah, your parents might be jack wagons, but they are your parents. And this is better you... than living with spiders. <laughs> Would you have been happier if she had maybe a moment or two with her parents beforehand where they're like, oh, okay. Our, our child's driving us nuts, but we really, really love her instead of just get out of our way yeah. all the time. Well, of course. I think so. Or just, like, some memory or some sort of yes, thing Yes, again, on. and the, yeah. like, when they took out the thing with the dad, it just it really undermined it. I just, you know. And and they added in that her, there was some kind of accident. Her mom was wearing a neck bro. Why? Why? Okay. No, literally. Why? What did that add? Except the only thing I could think of was that then in the in the movie when she climbs into bed with the pillows, she can put her dad's glasses. Here's a here's a thing that represents my dad, and then the neck brace. Here's the thing that represents my mom. Because apparently, as an audience, we would have been confused if she just got into bed with two pillows, mom and dad. Nope, nope. Gotta have signals. Gotta have a thing. Dad has glasses. Mom has a neck brace. That's how we represent them in pillow form because we're not smart enough to no my god like why why i just okay okay can we talk about something else that i didn't like <laughs> okay but they're both good just just reiterating mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. the film is really really good let's the talk... short story is good let's talk about tell... talk about more that kalia hates let's talk about a, pl- a way that the movie failed again which is no i'm just kidding i'm sorry <laughs> you know I really did come into this being like, yeah, the movie was fine. But the more we talk about it, the more I'm just like, no, the movie was fine. But the book was so much better. The cat. In the book, the cat was awesome. The cat was kind of a dickwad. The cat was awesome. In in both places, we just got more of the cat in the book. We got the whole... We got way more of the cat in the book. And the cat had its own little... Neil Gaiman's got a thing about cats. I thought that the voice of the cat was was a little... It was not at all what I had pictured or, you know, imagined, I guess I should say. Um, which is fine because, you know, I'm one person and maybe other people had imagined it and it's a deeper, older voice. But, I don't know, the cat was okay. I, I liked the cat better in the... I don't know. The, the cat was kind of just a jerk in both of them. I, as much as I love cats, I, I do have that 
it's kind of cool when she throws the cat at the other mother. <laughs> it happens at both of them, and there's yes. a cat going, ah! <laughs> Claw, claw, claw. Yeah, did not expect that. <laughs> that was that was excellently done. And she apologized. I'm sorry. I just... Okay, so I'm not condoning using cats as weapons, but it's still a great moment. Speaking of Coraline in the book being more heroic, okay, the the climax happens. She's back in the in the safe of her real world, and the hand is here. The hand is in this world, and it's not like the next day. Several days go by of this background fear. Like, living with that fear and knowing that it's there and somehow watching you, even though hands don't have eyes, but fine, suspension of disbelief, the hand knows... Do you want to go down to theories? No, I don't. We could go down to theories. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) My point is that it built a lot of tension because it wasn't just the next day, which I understand in movies they skip time. Like, they don't... You can't do time the same way in books and movies. But then she tricks the hand. She lays out this she like lays out a trap and fakes it and is like oh let's drink tea and plays with her dolls and yada 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 to get the hand where she wants it and i was just like this is Coraline. she's brilliant she is freaking clever as fuck and i love it so much in the movie it was much more climatic and running and jumping and chasing and ah you know and and it was like a lucky stroke of luck that Frickin' YB was here to help save the day, and then we're gonna put it in the... Yeah. To me, I put it down to different mediums. I'm fine with the action in the film, because, again, you need to punch it up a little bit. It's a different audience. It's a different medium. I'm fine with that. See, I don't think you need to punch it up for the audience. I think we could give the audience the benefit of the doubt that they could live in a space where they're not being constantly bombarded by action scenes, and that they would be okay with that. Okay, I like the scene. Okay. I like the- <laughs> And I like the scene in the book. I just think it's a different medium and therefore takes, you know, different things that you need. One of the things that got me that, and I will say this to Neil Gaiman, I love Neil Gaiman. He is a master storyteller and is really, really good at laying on layers of tension. So when all the portals disappear for the cat, you know, the cat was this kind of Cheshire cat, can kind of go in and out. He's Mm -hmm. a little bit impervious to the world. He's never going to be in danger. Right. And then his portals are gone, and all of a sudden the cat is small and scared, and it's a little tiny cat and a spider web. Yeah, and it gets cuddled. Yeah. Yeah, early cat would not be down with being picked up and cuddled against yeah. Coraline's chest. Yeah. So that was like a really smart way to ratchet up tension. Mm-hmm. And again, I do love that hand because it is that creepy back of... It's kind of like you forget that bill to pay, and you're like, oh... Okay, it's there, it's there, it's there, and it's nagging at you, but, you know, stuff comes up, you forget about it, this happened, but, oh, yeah, it's there, it's there, and so it's that building tension that kind of lurks around you. Right, where you can't completely relax. So I thought that was a, a interesting change. Now, to me, the way I interpreted the book is that the mother may have just severed off her hand to kind of throw it down the corridor and go after Coraline. Mm-hmm. Or in the film, it's cut off, and so it's just this like little mechanical thing, where otherwise it's a flesh and it, it's it's basically the thing, yeah, you know, from Adam's family, kind of, yeah. Um, buttons in the novel act much like masks than that they conceal. Buttons, though, conceal a being's intentions rather than identity. Coraline cannot read the other parents' intentions as they reveal no perceptible emotions through their dead plastic button eyes. She can't even discern if they're watching her, as the buttons don't rotate the way normal human eyes do. The buttons therefore become a symbol of the insecurability and inhumanity of the other parents. And I was like, yep, 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 yep. Buttons are hecka creepy, and Neil Gaiman is a freaking genius to take something that is like... So innocuous, so innocuous, and be like, you know what could be really creepy? Buttons. It's almost like, you know, someone's like, hey, 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 write a story about a creepy button. And he was like, challenge accepted. (laughs) And it does fantastic in the film. Yeah. You know, having those big black things stare at you. Uh, And at one point she taps on one. Yeah. And it's like that clicky, ah, touch your eye. Okay, I, I... I can't wear contacts just for that reason. I can't touch my eyeball. Oh. And when I see people putting contacts and the person who was demonstrating did that, she's like, yeah, yeah. just touch your eyeball. No, nope. I am noping out of that so hard. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So I liked I liked the buttons. Yeah, and they're kind of watching her. Like, even when she's walking away, her normal parents would go into the house. They'll start doing their other thing. The other parents are just staring at her as she's walking away the entire yeah. time. Yep. Yeah, they are way creepy. But also, let's talk about something that's creepy in the movie is the doll that looks like Coraline. So the dolls are not in the book. Yes, that is accurate. And the parent doll with their, like, how they were smashed together, that's that's unsettling. It's all unsettling. <laughs> it, I mean, it's meant to be. That's That's the thing. This is meant to be. This is creepy for the sake of being creepy. Well, you're telling a story that's about the creep factor, so... I know. I just don't like knowing that I'm being emotionally manipulated. I like it to be more subtle. Like having button eyes that you tap Yes! <laughs> like, that's creepy. But, I mean, the doll... I don't know. Okay. And and it opens up... The, the, the movie opens up with the needle fingers creating this doll, bringing a version of it in, and then emptying it out and taking it apart and then putting it back together in a different form. Now it looks like Coraline and then like letting it loose into the sky so that it'll be found by someone so that then it can be taken somewhere so that it can spot. (sighs) Okay. So visual Easter eggs for those of you who like them, the tree looks like a graspy, you know, the other mother hand with like the little fingers splayed. Um, and when the other mother creates the storm, there's a lightning flash. And again, it's that same hand motif coming down to grasp at Coraline. For those of you who are into visual Easter eggs and like that sort of thing, just just to put it in Enjoy. there. Enjoy. <laughs> Enjoy. Yeah, I, I, yeah, the doll. The doll was very creepy. But people find dolls creepy, so... Dolls are hecka creepy. I am, I am firmly in the camp of dolls are hecka creepy. Somebody gifted my daughter... A doll when she was a child that literally only had eyes. It did not have a mouth or a nose, and it um, it went away. <laughs> it did not live a night in this house. Nope. <laughs> did you eviscerate it? No, I just chucked it. <laughs> I'm not a sadist. Anyways, okay, if you want to get into symbology, the garden is a symbol of youth and innocence. Maybe we could say it in a way that doesn't sound so bored of tropes and symbols. I'm bored of tropes and symbols. Um, the In the movie, the, the garden looked like Coraline's head. And at the end, when the camera pans up, you realize that the garden still kind of vaguely looks like the bedlam. So I'm with you with that, like, this was, like, definitely a trap, a spider's trap. The whole, the whole house, the grounds, the whole thing. We didn't have that in the book. We didn't need that in the book, but we didn't have that in the book. And it was fine. That's fine. Yeah. So for me, this is totally worth it. I still love the film, even after dissecting it. There's stuff going on. For those of you who want to find the stuff that's going on, it's fun on the surface. The eyeballs are great. The cat's great. The animation, the stop motion animation is great. I love the sisters and how, you know, they... You see them back in their glory days, and that's like this really awesome scene after the comical or girl make fun of these poor old ladies. I will say that it will take you probably just as long to read this book as it does to watch the movie, and the book is better. But if you're super into visual feasts and all of that stuff and and visual clues and you want to want you want the joy and experience of watching something multiple times and getting something out of it every time and freeze framing on random things this is totally the movie for you random. and that easter eggs you deliver it that's great i will say that the movie was definitely creepy i think that it, it kept the tone of the creepiness of the book so what do you think is a good age to introduce children to this and okay so now i'm sorry every child is different and that's just the answer to that because i will tell you that my child is nowhere near ready for this at seven i i will also tell you that i was scared of the ghostbusters movie way later than most people (laughs) 21 so okay (laughs) okay 
That's cute. Well, I had a traumatic childhood experience. They took me to see it in the theater, and it was really fucking scary for a three-year-old. Oh, okay. I thought okay. you saw it for the first time no, 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 when you were no, no, no. 21. I'm no, like, but okay, because, yeah. because as a three-year-old, I didn't understand that it was supposed to be funny, and like, yeah. there's a dog, and there's like hands that come out of a chair, and it's very, very traumatic. And then like, I think I had to be taken out. Like, I don't even think I made it to the end. And then didn't know what it was. It was just like this thing. And so years... Yeah, you have be- like a vague memory of this right, thing. Right, because... Terrifying. And then when people talk about Ghostbusters, those are not the parts that they like show or like clips or whatever. So then I'm like 20, 21, and I'm like walking through a, a living room of somebody's house. And like, I saw it. And I was like, oh my God, this is a, such a scary movie. And they all laughed just like you did. Oh, no, it's not. So then we sat down to try to watch it. And I was like, yeah, nope. And I had to walk away because I was still scared because it like, I turned back into that three-year-old who did not understand. So, right? I have seen it since then. It is fine. My point is that Don't fears- introduce your three-year-old to Ghostbusters. Don't introduce your, your so, very sensitive seven-year-old to, to Coraline. Coraline. No, as I started to read this book, because the back is so great, the, the, the chunk, and like, there's a foreword in my cop version, which talks about the original beginning of the book, which was great. It's, it's beautiful. And I was like, oh, you know, my daughter sometimes gets scared of things. And this is a girl who like faces her fear. So maybe this would be something I could read to her. And then, you know, no, definitely no, 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 no. She's way, way too sensitive. This would, this would, I mean, my daughter is afraid of the shadows in her bedroom because they have teeth and she has never watched a scary thing. I don't know where that comes from. It's just her head, man. Okay. Point is, to answer your question, I don't know. Depends on the child. It so depends on the kid. Because I know four-year-olds who watch freaking Walking Dead and they're fine. Whatever. (laughs) Yeah. So I I do say that with a caveat, but also I just want to highlight that this is one of those things that you might want to be a little bit more careful with because it's not your average children's story. For sure. And so... This is a fairy tale about a child that I don't feel is geared towards children at all. Yeah, so don't pick it up thinking, oh, this is a great story for my child. It's one that you want to double check and make sure that, you know, you know your child. And that's why I bring that up. Yeah. And thankfully, the cover of the book is a little freaky. So, (laughs) you know, my daughter picked it up and goes, this is creepy. Why are you reading this? I said, well, it's a really good story. You'll like it when you're older. I don't know. I don't know. Like, for reals, she um, has the book Bonuncula. Bonuncula. It's about the vampire bunny. And there's two different covers, okay? And the first cover is scary, and she wouldn't have anything to do with it. And then I got her the same book with a different cover, and she was willing to read it, and now she loves it. It's one of her favorites, and that's fine. But she still won't go anywhere near the other version with its scary cover. So those things really matter. Yeah, they do. Know your child by spending time with them and not just working. All said and done, I'm very glad, I'm very glad that we read this book and watched this movie. This was fun. Thank you for this. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. And enjoy. Um, this This episode will come out in October. So if you are going to be cosplaying Coraline, I would love to see a picture of that. <laughs> yeah, totally. Please send those in and we will put them on our website maybe. Sure, if if you if you want us to, or we'll just share them on social media or whatever you want. Anyways, uh, happy Halloween, happy October, and uh, thanks for listening.